Hey kids, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this is episode 116, April 2019. Our guest this month is Mark Pritchard. Mark is a dramaturg, producer, and director who currently works as the new work manager and resident dramaturg at Malthouse Theatre in Melbourne, Australia. We found Mark through his Arts Hub article, Changing the Game on the Power of Dramaturgy and Curation. I happen to be a huge geek when it comes to dramaturgy, play analysis, and development, so I was behooved, nay, compelled, to contact Mark and see he was up for a discussion on all things relevantly related. And thanks to these here newfangled interweb thingamabobbies, we actually managed it. So, how did you get to be one? What led you into actually doing this kind of work? Yeah, I guess it's not a stream that I really uh, knew that I existed, I suppose. I studied dramaturgy in terms of kind of theater history uh, as a student in my undergraduate uh, course. And uh, and then I started as I when I graduated, like I started training as an actor and then uh, started playing with directing and then just started working with writers on new writing, just kind of in the course of of directing and collaborating, I suppose. Um, after I trained as a director, I then um, started making a lot of kind of immersive and interactive work. So making theater outside of theaters and kind of taking the rules of theater and seeing how they apply to uh, different experiences, I suppose. So I threw uh, in a collaboration with another director, Bridget Belotus, we made a series of yeah immersive and interactive work. And, and then over a kind of couple of years, sort of um, I then started, I got a placement with uh, Malthouse Theatre, where I work now. And, and that was really the first time that I called myself a dramaturg, was at that moment of doing a placement in dramaturgy hmm. and, and then becoming the resident dramaturg. But then looking back through all the theatre that I'd made and how I'd approached it, it really was a series of, of dramaturgical investigations, trying to understand what theatre is and, and how it works and, and how we engage with it. So um, it was a sort of strange progression, not necessarily through the kind of literary management and, and not through a playwright, my, being a playwright myself. Um, yeah, it was more through um, experiments and more kind of applied dramaturgy, I suppose. Where were you working at this particular point before you got to Malthouse where you discovered, I mean, you were talking about working with uh, immersive uh, uh, work. Please explain that first because it's yeah. different, different people have different <laughs> terms for immersive. I mean, I worked in a seafood restaurant and that was pretty immersive theater, I suppose. <laughs> you have to explain yeah. that. Yeah, I worked at a seafood restaurant and uh, I mean, it was a fundamentally theatrical place. It was super interactive. It was really kind of chaotic. You had to very much host the audience and kind of guide them through an experience. And and the the people that I worked with, it really like it became about telling the stories of the food and, and creating an experience. So that just got me thinking a lot about theater outside of theater contexts. But in terms of kind of making like work in a more art context, I suppose, uh, I worked through uh, Next Wave Festival, uh, which is a, a hybrid arts festival that happens every two years in Melbourne, a very much a cross art form um, festival. So the first work that we made uh, was called Shotgun Wedding. It was an interactive wedding experience where the audience is the central performer. Um, so it was kind of, uh, yeah, an immersive experience. And it started out of, I guess, a series of conversations about marriage and what marriage means. And as two queers making this work, it was, um, it was very much at a time in Australia where the same sex marriage debate was really, um, alive. And a lot of people, we were out there protesting and, and fighting for the right to get married, but 
also at the same time trying to work out whether that institution was actually for us and whether we wanted to be part of it. So I guess we had a series of questions that we wanted to um, take outside of the theatre and, and, and really engage in conversation, have a genuine conversation with an audience. So we uh, ended up making this, this work, Shotgun Wedding, over a kind of series of experiments and then presented the work in 2012. Um, where basically we divide the audience into two halves, into a sort of a bride side and a groom side, uh, and we pick a bride and groom from the audience. Um, they don't know they're going to be doing that. Uh, we basically throw a wedding dress and a suit on them, throw them down the aisle. We conduct a wedding ceremony, and it's super lo-fi. It's in a park. It's uh, The costumes are pretty cheap, and the 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 uh, the... Uh, vows are like Shania Twain lyrics. Super simple. But the essence of the ritual was really powerful that you've got, you know, two people standing opposite each other, looking into each other's eyes, putting a ring on your finger. And, you know, when you didn't realize you're going to be doing this 10 minutes ago and, and something happens like over the course of the experiments of trying to get this show right we discovered there was a there was a real power in the ceremony of doing this kind of exchange and having it witnessed. We were like, oh, that's what it's about. This cool. is what it's about. It's about this communal exchange and and about the ritual more than about the legalities. So we do the wedding ceremony and then we go back to an empty hall uh, and the rest of the the rest of the audience build the wedding from scratch. So there's just the piles of decorations, some tables, a cake that's undecorated canapes to be made uh and the audience just build it themselves so over the course of about an hour uh, maybe 45 minutes they yeah build set up the wedding from scratch and that was something that we discovered over the course of experimenting as well that the wedding really had to be built by the community you couldn't just drop the audience into a wedding experience it became them waiting for the show to happen so we're again trying to work out what is investment how do we get people to invest in this fake ritual and and people really discovered this kind of experience of kind of fake and real that when the bride and groom then came out and uh, and and saw their entire wedding set up and there were speeches from the audience and and those kinds of things that made that had this yeah uncanny kind of element so mm. we're kind of looking at how a wedding is fundamentally theatrical it's about symbol it's about character ritual costume yeah. meaning is being made. Um, did you say and, these were binary weddings or were these same-sex weddings? Uh, these were these were um, opposite-sex weddings. So this okay. because that's the tradition of the wedding, I suppose. But we're really throwing a question in that there were absolutely queers doing the ritual within mm-hmm. that. But would you think to put a man and a woman there and just kind of go, what is that like? Uh, and and then why would we engage with it? And how would we engage with it? Is really a question. How much of the meaning that this this ritual holds a meaning for a community? And how much of that mean do we want to keep? And how much of that meaning do we need to renegotiate? And how hard is it to renegotiate that meaning? It sounds like you're dramaturging the entire idea of the concept of marriage. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's kind of, there's the concept of marriage and then there's the ritual of the wedding. And so much of the baggage of marriage uh, comes to life in a wedding. If you've ever tried to have a low-key wedding where it's really not a big deal and you don't want your parents to get too overwhelmed with it or yeah. you know, I've watched people try to do low-key weddings and, and just gradually the stakes rise until on the night it is just as, you know, just as intense as every other wedding. So it's, it's so much of the baggage that we all bring uh, because this, mean, this ritual is important to us and that's yeah. kind of 
what we discovered over the course of it, that even in the most kind of, you know, uh, lefty kind of contemporary circles who are really irreverent and, you know, don't think they're attached to these kinds of weddings, they do have a power. These rituals do have a power. And, and we wanted to really honor that and negotiate that and, and kind of bring that to life. So, so that's what the project was kind of bringing to the fore. Yeah. I, 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 first marriages are always watershed major watershed moments in anybody's life i mean not so much you know for second and third fourth fifth sixth marriages um <laughs> but uh no <laughs> don't let's not go there um <laughs> but my question is and pun intended i mean uh, uh, what was the reception of the audience like i mean how did they <laughs> did they buy into this immediately did it take them a while and what was their response like yeah, that was it was really interesting because we developed this about over the course of about 18 months. So Next Wave Festival runs a kind of kickstart program, which is an emerging artists program to sort of support you in making your most uh, ambitious work. So we had a series of uh, experiments where really we tried to really replicate the wedding and really do it quite uh, elaborately and and bring the audience into it. And it was very hard to get them to engage. They were very much sitting back and, and waiting for the for the performance and where is the art going to happen. Um, so we kept modifying it and reworking it and reworking it and, realize, and really trying to get into this question of investment and and how to create um, yeah how to create investment between with an audience. And yeah, we sort of slowly realized that of course everyone wanted to actually like help set up like that's how people really engage in in any of these rituals is by doing something having a little part in it so people always wanted to go into the kitchen and and help out or do you need anything do you need anything and and we realized that's how they that's how people engage is is by by actually helping set up which was uh, yeah totally bizarre to us uh, as theater makers because we wanted to present a finished product but actually we had to engage them in the creation and kind of risk that and we also had to uh, not go straight to wedding, I suppose, not mm -hmm. go straight to that kind of finished aesthetic that some of our best experiments were at really non-traditional venues. So we did one in an office block just because it was the only place that we could find for free and we just needed to keep testing this thing out. And actually by making the environment less like a wedding and by asking the audience to build a wedding there, the investment was even stronger because they had to get push against the environment there around and we sort of made it a, a communal project. And we also, there's a kind of displacement that goes on where the audience, the big community of audience think that the bride and groom are doing the biggest performance. So what they're doing is easy. If they're going to like learn to waltz and decorate a cake and set up the entire room, that's easy because the performance is the bride and groom. But actually the bride and groom are watching the audience do this incredible performance where they are suddenly getting really invested. And, you know, it's a language that everyone knows. So very quickly people were... Uh, jumping into roles, I suppose. We didn't ask people to like be the kooky aunt or do any kind of dinner theater sort of stuff, <laughs> but we didn't, you know, like we've tried to veer away from that level of kind of character performance, but that took us back to our rules of acting, that acting is, you know, really about action and about doing something. So when we invited someone to give a speech, we said, you're a representative of the bride's family. We want you to say uh, something about love something about the future and we want you to represent uh, welcome the group into the family so we just gave them three clear tasks and that kept everyone on track and they, but then the performance really came to life that people got up and and gave some really really impassioned speeches that didn't lean too much into character mm. but actually were were these sort of strange transactions between two people that don't know each other but you're giving a speech and you're handing your, you know, this person over to the other family. It was really, it was interesting those moments where yeah. um, 
where we found our way into an interactive performance and really made it come to life. Um, and there was sort of, and then sort of spontaneous performances would start to emerge. Like I remember one in one night of the show, uh, the, an audience member just kind of, uh, I don't know what happened to them. The spirit took over and they started going, no, don't marry her. Don't marry her. And they just kind of leapt into character and they leapt it, you know, with, um, uh, yeah, and started like running around the room and really it's kind of fell into this role of jealous ex. Uh, it was very strange, but <laughs> kind of wonderful because we made no invitation around that. It wasn't, that wasn't really the vibe, um, but it was amazing. Like it just kind of added to it in this extraordinary way that people were going, yeah, the wedding is a site where so much is being negotiated. So it was pretty incredible to see that stuff come this to This sounds life. like um, an unbelievable experience. It's, um, it completely, was... completely immersive. I mean, I, you know, I, I bet after hearing this, there are going to be people out there who are going, this is a great way to do our wedding really cheap. Yeah, yeah. it absolutely is. And actually, my collaborator just got married uh, last year, and I, f I could see all of the things that we discovered out of making wedding after wedding uh, really coming through in her wedding because it was really, like, simple and elegant and beautiful, and she just understood the nature of engagement and and how to get people to invest um, without getting lost in the the baggage. It was yeah, super beautiful. So yeah, it's it. I learned a lot about weddings. <laughs> that's for sure. Oh yeah, I'll bet you did. You've, yeah, you get on a lot of mailing lists once you start exploring the decorations or any kind of side of where to hire a DJ. Um, yeah, suddenly the industry is after you and you're getting calls, calls, calls. So it was, yeah, it was fascinating. We spent a lot of time pretending to be a bride and groom just to, just as an experiment. And it was very revealing. I'll bet it was. We're talking, I mean, everybody's got their own, I guess, different idea of dramaturgy because it's not one of those things mm. where you can find a set definition for it. Different people practice it in different ways. I mean, I'm sure your way yeah. of practicing it is different from mine, which is different from somebody else's. So yes. you write about two things which I want to talk about. One is hybrid dramaturgy, which I'd like to get to first. Mm. Um, so what exactly is hybrid dramaturgy? Yeah, I guess dra hybrid dramaturgy uh, is maybe a term that, I mean, I've, it's kind of uh, rung true for me, I suppose, because it's about bringing together different storytelling forms and, and seeing how they cooperate or, or what the intersection is between different languages. Obviously, there's uh, many ways in which we tell stories, and theatre is just one of them. And more and more, I'm seeing, I've been working with artists who are having to apply different dramaturgies or who are trying to bring together the languages of film or graphic novel, um, working with uh, podcast kind of dramaturgy or, yeah, different forms, I suppose, that are interplaying in the theatre, that theatre isn't just about uh, text-driven storytelling now. There's a lot of languages going on. Uh, and so, I mean, and with Shotgun Wedding, for example, there was a range of dramaturgies that we had to look at. Are we like the dramaturgy of the wedding itself, but also is this an exhibition? Is this a immersive dance piece? Uh, is it just a piece of theater? Is it just a wedding itself? So we sort of had to look at how different dramaturgies were coming together at that point and then find the dramaturgy of our own work of the work that we wanted to make. How are we going to bring those different vocabularies together? Uh, a project that I worked on recently, well, it was in uh, 2014, uh, was called Wael Zawaita Unknown, uh, which was a, a, a radio documentary piece, it, like live in the theater that brought together, yeah, radio documentary, uh, graphic novel, 
uh, and and music composition as well in there. And it was a story about a, a Palestinian activist who was assassinated in 1972, uh, and he was a, a translator, and he was uh, translating A Thousand and One Nights at the time, and uh, he was he was engaged to an Australian visual artist who was the aunt of the guy that I made the work with, Jesse Cox. Uh, so, and Jesse's background was as a podcast maker, as a radio maker. So that radio storytelling was his vocabulary. And, uh, but he wanted to make this work in the theater. He'd made it, um, in a, as a video, he'd made a short podcast about it, but he wanted to make a full length theater work that was going to be kind of live documentary storytelling using that radio language. So I had to find how the podcast language comes together with the theatrical language. What happens when you move that story into the theater? How does theater work differently? We're also weaving in a graphic novel, the sort of graphic illustrations that we were using to tell the story, mixed up with photos, and then Jesse's own experience of going to Israel and then Palestine uh, to follow the journey of this. So there are a whole, different, a whole lot of storytelling layers going mm-hmm. on and different vocabularies. So we just had to negotiate that as a team, I suppose. What are we talking about here? What are you, like, he's an extraordinary storyteller, but how does that storytelling intersect with theatrical storytelling? Right. And, so we're talking about, uh, it was like, a yeah, fascinating in, process. We're talking about intersecting multi-format. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, not, absolutely. Just, not just traditionally, you know, trad theater, two or three people on stage, but yeah. we're talking about representing the meaning behind the text in various forms. Yeah, yeah, okay. that's right. And it's a, it's a story that had a life in many different forms. So, um, yeah, we had to find what this one is. And also in terms of a vocabulary and a process, if we obviously can't talk about character and story in the same way and, and whose story is this was a really interesting uh, kind of negotiation, as I suppose, was it YL's story? Is it Jesse's story? Uh, yeah, what's the story that's going on here? So, and they, and they were different. The answers to that were different in a podcast and in the theater. Yeah. You talk about alternative dramaturgies, which is, I think, what we've been talking about at this point. But you follow that with, in order to say what can't otherwise be said, and that's what I want to know. What are those things that cannot be said in traditional staging, traditional dramaturgy? Why do we need alternative dramaturgies? And what are those things that I need to hear that I won't get in a traditional setting? Yeah, I guess um, when I say alternative dramaturgies, the immediate question is alternative to what? And and Australian theatre, as it's kind of as as very has a strong British tradition, I suppose, as a as a colonised country, that's kind of become a dominant tradition. So I guess when I talk about alternative dramaturgies, I'm talking in relation to that. And then when we look at this incredible history of indigenous storytelling and indigenous theater that predates colonization. Uh, and so that's a kind of, uh, I guess, a way in that I would sort of call an alternative dramaturgy. And that's the kind of story that can't really be encapsulated in a, a realist play. Um, and when we talk about feminist dramaturgies, that's a big thing that Australian artists are exploring at the moment. There's a lot of people playing more deeply with image uh, and thinking not, just uh, in a straightforward narrative sense, but thinking more vertically, thinking more associatively, uh, creating landscape work rather than stuff that has is formed around its narrative drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is, is yeah, I guess uh, allowing different people to tell their stories, I suppose. It's, um, yeah, bringing different people into the theatre and um, 
yeah, talking about different experiences and, and, and bringing those experiences to life. Okay. Um, so you're basically talking about bringing new experiences to audiences that don't have a history of those experiences. Uh, sorry, say that again? You're talking about bringing uh, the context of what's the history of the text to audience members that may not have a realization or familiarization with that particular background or history. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's trying to tell it on the artist's own terms, I suppose, rather than um, forcing them to yeah work within within a singular way of storytelling. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. That, no, that makes sense. Um, you also talk about, and, and this is something I find fascinating because I'm a playwright myself, and mm. one of the things I deal with is a writing what you know, and b writing within your scope. Not to mm. not to um, use somebody else's voice, okay? And by yep. that, yeah, it's, I think we both know what I'm talking about. Um, you talk about the authority to tell stories. Now, I, I recently had a guest on the show who mm. uh, I brought on because he encouraged cisgender writers to start writing trans characters. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just listened yeah. to that one. Okay. And uh, my, you know, as, as a cisgender writer, my thing was, whoa, that's, that's walking on, you know, a, 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 a lifestyle that I know nothing about. I mean, what gives me the right to do that? Yeah. So yeah. What's, your, what's your take on this? I mean, who has the authority to tell what stories? Yeah, I think you have to earn the authority to tell the story. Um, you have to earn it. And there's a huge history of that trust being betrayed, I suppose. There's a lot of um, stories that have been mistold, a lot of uh, communities who have been radically misrepresented, and, and that trust is really broken down. And, and in Australia, there's a, you know, real a kind of white dominance in theatre, I suppose, and, and a white masculine dominance as well. And, and, and that really perverts the kinds of representations people see and, and the stories that they don't see at all. So I think there's a huge lack of trust. And, and right now that's being renegotiated. So I think people are starting to um, uh, be given the, the opportunities to tell their own stories. And we're seeing a whole lot of new voices emerge in Australian theatre right now, which is super exciting. People from really different backgrounds. And, and they're really staking that claim. And I think... Now is a moment where we do really need to be prioritizing those voices um, and and doing the work, really. I don't think that uh, there are areas that are necessarily completely like uh, out of bounds for a writer to go into. Like I think we do need to be representing a diversity of people in in the plays that we're writing, but we need to do our homework. And it's so easy to go, oh, yeah, yeah, I get that person. Yeah, yeah, I understand what that's like. Or, you know, I've met a lot of people like that. I get it. And and ultimately, the onus is on, on us as, as the artists and as for playwrights in particular. The onus is on the playwright to really do that work and do their homework and, and, get the, and earn the right to tell that story. Mm. Good answer. I like that one. Um, tricky, though. It is very yeah, tricky because you're absolutely. Old, it's, I, I would feel very nervous about writing about someone that whose life, lifestyle, politics, history, I haven't experienced and I haven't lived through. I would feel like I was treading on, uh, you know, somebody else's 
somebody else's existence, and yet I write female characters. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. yeah how do and you I... should feel nervous. Like, feeling nervous isn't a bad thing. It just means you care. Like, you know, yeah, that's so, true. Yeah, I just... um, it's an absolute investment. So I think it's, it's a negotiation, and, and just because we're uncomfortable doesn't mean we shouldn't go there, but we've got to tread carefully and, and got to negotiate it and, and, and really build those relationships respectfully because the power dynam- dynamics can be so imbalanced. Um, between yeah, b- between people and them make- when they're trying to make work together, so we have to constantly, I guess, kind of critically reflect on that as yeah. we're working, but not give up working. Oh, you know? yeah, definitely not give up working. <laughs> hey, kids, you're listening to On Stage, Off Stage, episode 116, April 2019. Our guest is Mark Pritchard, a dramaturg and new works manager from Malthouse Theatre in Melbourne, Australia. We're delving deep into all things dramaturgical and talking not just about bringing new works to life, but also bringing them to their fullest potential by working with all of the different ways that textual and thematic meanings can be expressed on stage. Yeah, this is not your grandpa's proscenium three actor anymore. Okay, um, who are the writers that you're seeing these days? Who are these playwrights that are that are coming up? Um, and what are they writing about? Are there trends about what they're doing? Is there a different wave of playwriting? Because I've heard that term used before, and I'm wondering if you're, you know, what your thoughts are on that. Who, who, who are these new these new writers coming in? Yeah, I mean, the, like the writers I'm working with, super exciting. Uh, lots of, I guess, young Asian Australian writers who are really um, talking about. Uh, my, not just migration, I suppose. I think we've moved beyond that. And it's really about uh, kind of intersectional identities and, and, and what it is particularly to be a young person uh, in a diasporic community and all the kind of negotiation, the code shifting, uh, working in different contexts and, and also trying to a- unpack what it is to be Asian in Australia, I suppose, and the kind of complexity of Australia's uh, history, what it is to be living on stolen land, I think is a huge question for artists right now. And then how do we, how do we also take up space without owning space? Um, so there's a lot of great humor coming out as people are trying to, I guess, talk about the absurdities of, of some of these questions and the the level of navel gazing, which is also really profound, you know, like this is actually the negotiation that people are trying to do work out, um, who they are and, and, and what are these kind of hybrid identities because um, Australia is a, like a very culturally diverse place and, um, and, and a lot of and new identities are kind of forming out of that, I suppose, out of that hybridity. So um, that's what most playwrights uh, are looking at now, I think. Well, there's a huge trend of it at least. So it's a, it's a pretty fascinating time. Yeah, it sounds like it. By the way, I love that word, hybridity. <laughs> I am going to steal that. Um, all right, so you come across a, uh, a playwright who's Asian-Australian, and he or she, uh, or they, have their, their work, um, and you're going to deal with it. What's your process? What's my process? I am often working um, with kind of emerging writers in particular, sometimes first or second time writers, so I'm really trying to... Um, find out what their vision for telling story is, you know, what's their dramaturgy. So my process with them generally starts pretty early in the kind of um, development of a work. So often a writer will come to me with like 10 pages or even just to come and chat about an idea that they've got. Um, And it's a sort of gradual process of uh, 
I guess, dream interpretation sometimes, you know, you're like, you, you're diving into someone's play and into their world and you're really trying to understand, uh, not what you see, but what they see there. Like what's, what's, uh, what's happening in, in their vision of the world. How do they arrange things? Um, and yeah, really trying to find their dramaturgy. So it's a lot of like, uh, deep listening and conversation, I suppose, as I'm kind of digging into the, the early writings. Um, I like to get in at that phase before the play is too formed because often people think a play has to exist in a certain form that it needs to go straight to this kind of narrative or be on one room or there's some, you know, I think there's some baggage, um, particularly if you haven't really engaged in theatre before. It can it feel like you're writing for a, um, a certain box to, um, to fill. But uh, so really try and, I guess, open that question out with them, like what is their vision of the world and how do they want to write plays? And, and then I share with them lots of like other plays that might be interesting to read or look at or just kind of, I guess, kind of, um, you know, turn the soil over a bit, like rake over the coals and, um, and, and inspire them to kind of keep opening out the possibilities of this idea. Um, and, and then I guess the journey of working with them, like that sort of sets up a vocabulary of what are we really trying to do? What is that feeling or that story you're trying to capture? And, and then I guess the course of writing a play takes generally about two years. So it's a kind of gradual process of, of, of reading and, and lots of conversation along the way, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like a, a, a dramaturg's work is an awful lot of shepherding, uh, especially with newer, newer writers. How do newer writers yeah. react some, uh, to somebody like yourself stepping in and saying, let's work on this, as opposed to other playwrights who are, and who are you to work on mine? Do yeah. You see what, you see what yeah. I'm getting at? Uh, yeah, I guess newer playwrights, um, uh, usually pretty excited to have someone to bounce it off, to be honest. Like yeah. writing can be a pretty lonely pursuit. Um, so I think the opportunity to, to have some, a conversation with someone and to not, like we're not, directly collaborating it's not about about my vision for the play so it's really just like uh spending the time to um yeah see what they're writing about and and it's pretty revelatory to be honest like when you i don't know when you can um help someone like kind of dig through a draft and i mean a playwright that i've uh just finished a commission with now i remember meeting with her on um her first draft and it was kind of uh, like, yeah, five pages or it was, she actually gave me two of the same scene that she'd been trying to write again and again. And it was just like hitting a wall and, and we just sat there and I kind of like dug through it, you know, and I was like, what is this? Why do you keep going to this? And what's this about? And what are you really trying to say here? And then the play just opens up and, and we just start going, all right, well, let's, you know, let's, um, release that. And, and, and let's try and look at this play again. Like if we were to start again, how are we going to build, like what are the essential building blocks you're playing with? So I guess the process, like I often talk about mapping or like drawing a bit of a mud map of the play, just kind of distilling it's uh, the elements or the kind of active components going on in there and just helping them see that clearly. Cause often when you're so in there and you're often trying to write something that's very close to you, it might be a personal story. Um, it might be, you know, yourself as the protagonist, it can be, you know, you can't see the forest from the trees sometimes. So, um, actually that process of, of, of simplifying and just kind of naming what's going on can, is, is the work really like that's, that can open up a lot. Yeah. I hear that. I, personally, I think every player in the world should have a dramaturg with them. Um, just, <laughs> no, seriously, just for the, uh, the purpose of having someone to bounce 
their work off of because you're writing from the inside of this world that you're creating and you cannot see what it looks like from the outside. And that's what yeah. you need is somebody out there who's saying, why is this close to that? Why is you know, it's perspective? And I think that's the yeah. most valuable thing that I mean could that I could be grateful for when I'm working on a place, having somebody there who can say, I like this, I like this, why are you doing this? Um, maybe we could blah 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 blah, you know, and just somebody to bounce it off. Yeah, someone described me uh, described the role of a dramaturg to me as being uh, like an usher in the theater. That you know, you've got a numbered ticket on that you've walked into the theater with, and you could just seat yourself. But everyone knows if there were no ushers in the theater, it would be pandemonium in there. Right. And the usher's role is just to receive your ticket, tell you literally what is written on it, and then show you, yep, you're in G7, so that's row G, seat number seven. That's just there. And and there you go. Like it's it's just, can be as simple an exchange as that. And and I, I yeah I really think that's that's totally true. That was Lachlan Philpot who said that to me. It was um, yeah a revelation about the simplicity of dramaturgy too. Yeah, we have, we have a tendency to overcomplicate some things, especially when they come with their own vernacular. Um, yeah yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you yeah. work, you work for the Malthouse Theater, and your job. Went, underwent a title change, I guess, from resident dramaturg to new work manager. Yeah. Why, why and what does that do for your job description? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like that, as as you say, dramaturg is kind of an obscure job title, so it it means a lot to some people and nothing to others, which is super interesting. Um, But I guess I was there as a resident artist for the kind of the past five years, so working on specific projects. But now we have so much new writing coming through the building that it really is, my role is now about overseeing all of the new work that goes on. Um, And I guess new new work manager as opposed to literary manager is because of the breadth of ways in which we make work at Malthouse Theatre, that it's not just about um, literature, I suppose. Uh, it's not just about a, a playwright-driven work or a text-driven project, but we can make work in a range of ways. It can be documentary work, it can be device work, it can be cabaret, it can be contemporary dance. You know, there's there's many ways in which to make theatre. And uh, I guess being a new work manager is about overseeing the many ways that that, um, that, that happens. And then when a new art, when an artist comes into the building, I can really open up you know, the possibilities and kind of go, how do you want to approach this making work? I don't just want to give you a straight up commission and, you know, tell you to go and write it in your room. Like, you know, we can look at more embodied writing processes. We can look at more collaborative writing processes. So I design a lot of our artist development projects as well, um, programs. So uh, different ways in which artists can collaborate. So trying to make sure that we do approach it in the way that the artist needs, not just kind of, yeah, using the old methods or the old forms. Yeah. How much work is actually coming through the theater right now? Because you made it sound like there's <laughs> a number of plays there. Yeah, yeah. I probably got about uh, 10 commissions going on at the moment, like 10 wow. commissions that um, aren't currently produced. And then there's a couple of commissions that are on stage this year. So, um, yeah, that's a lot. And then I've got emerging writers groups. I bring on sort of four or five emerging writers each year who I'm kind of in an ongoing kind of mentorship process with. So um, giving them dramaturgical support. So there's, yeah, there's the commissions and then, um, yeah, we make work in a range of other ways as well. So there's a lot going on. It's not all going to make it to the stage, but it's, it's, 
it's a huge time. It's a huge time. There's a lot of new voices uh, and, and, and a lot of work to be done. It's really about resources. <laughs> Do you actually have a life outside of this? Because uh, you sound much. like unbelievably busy. <laughs> <laughs> it's super busy, but um, it's yeah, it's it's. Uh, I love it. I love it. I suppose <laughs> maybe the answer is no. I don't have a life outside of this. Um, uh, okay, well, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to tell you to go get one because I'd love to have more of life in the theater. Okay, seeing as how you're so unbelievably busy, and we've been talking about that, talk to me about the new Center for Dramaturgy, which is something else that you're doing. Yes, the Center for Dramaturgy and Curation. So that's uh, a bit of a side project, I suppose. My partner, Ari Rain Glory, is a curator, and and he and I have been having a series of conversations, of course, about art and theater, and um, and I guess the similarities and differences between how those um, those art forms work, how artists approach the work, how it's kind of presented, and how it engages with an audience, and um, the different vocabularies that go on again. So we and we also both work full time and and wanted some sort of uh from a, for companies and we wanted some sort of other place in which to do this other thinking i suppose i've got lots of like ongoing dramaturgical questions that i don't really get to apply in my work my work is really about other people's work um so i wanted a space in which to do that and and he was kind of feeling the same and that there's not really much of a space for genuine conversation about about dramaturgy and curation. So we um, now cooked up this uh, research space um, uh, in, in Brunswick, in Melbourne. Um, and yeah, it's a space that we give over to artists to do research residencies in. And we, we consult with them as um, a dramaturg and as a curator, kind of give them those different perspectives and, and then just give them the time and space um, and some resources to do their, to do their research in. So it's really some kind of, I guess, a point of connection between different dramaturgs and curators, somewhere to have that conversation and, um, and we're really just going to see what comes out. It's a new project that started uh, in January this year. Um, so we're sort of two months in, but um, the response has been really exciting. So that's good, really strong. Actually, it sounds thrilling. Um, yeah. I, 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 I try to picture your life at this particular point and having <laughs> almost no room it's, to even breathe or eat. Um, <laughs> yeah, look, we just, we've realized we gave up our weekends, but uh, it's, it's proving fruitful. It was the kind of thinking we were doing in that time anyway. So we just thought, yeah. let's go while, we were, while we're young, you know. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Well, as, as if that wasn't enough, you've got something going called No Show, um, which, as, yeah. as I see, is an ongoing joint project with uh, Bridget, <laughs> Bridget Bolotis. Did I pronounce that properly? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's okay. right. Yeah. So that's Shotgun Wedding was out of that um, project. So No Show hasn't made a project recently. Um, but that was a kind of series of, um, yeah, uh, works around rituals. So we made one about a seance. Uh, one um, using there was sort of a funeral for a festival. One that was a, uh, using a phone call as the ritual, the ritual of a phone call. Um, so yeah, that was sort of a series of interactive experiments. Okay, as part of this, you talk about urgent contemporary questions, and a lot of theater these days is about what is going on outside of the theater in real life. I mean, what, in your view, are those urgent contemporary questions what, what what is it that needs to be dealt with yeah i mean i think in australia at least we've got big questions about 
leadership and uh, the nature of government and democracy and our relationship to we the media. We have those here too, especially yeah, absolutely. now. Yes. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. It's um, yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think they're big questions. Uh, big. Uh, I guess histories that we're coming out of that we're trying to um, renegotiate. Um, what Australian identity is. Um, who's in control? Um, yeah. Who's 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 leading the, the country and. And is it about what's at the top or is it more about a grassroots kind of approach? So I think there's a lot of power renegotiation going on and and then we're trying to work out what to do with our history. And particularly in Australia, we have an intensely violent history that we struggle to talk about in terms of uh, colonization. So I think that's definitely um, one of the biggest uh, drivers at the moment is, is how do we talk about colonial violence and, and acknowledge that as part of our history um, because it's been um, very easy and convenient to uh, move on from it, I suppose. Our relationship to the environment is probably another big question that artists are trying to work out at the moment. And, and I think how to bring environmental questions onto the stage is really interesting when, when theatre is so much about people and, and society um, and, and how we relate to one another. Um, uh, we're now trying to question out the centrality of humans in the world, I suppose, and what is our impact on on the environment. So... Um, yeah, they're super interesting questions and big frontiers, I think, for theatre makers to be trying to work out what to do with. Yeah, turning the glass upon ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's um, it's there's a lot of that going on. I think that there's a big cultural yeah. renegotiation that is happening globally, and um, so and that's for me, it's a time where we really need theatre makers. We need to be talking about how we relate to one another and the world we're existing in. And we need a space where that conversation can happen. And, and for me, that's live. For me, that's in the theater. Yeah. I mean, from some of the things you've been talking about, I, I can't help but make uh, relationships between, you know, the colonization bit, uh, which the United States had for a while with, mm. you know, the mother country, um, same as Australia. And, governmental leadership questions, which, uh, like I said, we're having some severe ones right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I'm wondering, there are other things. I mean, identity, especially when it comes to sharing space and respecting the indigenous, the the First Nations, uh, who Mm. were, you know, the the folks who were here before uh, we were sent out here on prison ships and such like that, because a lot of the people that came to the U.S., uh, you know, left for the very same reasons that uh, people in Australia were there. And and Australia began as as a prison island, or that was one one of its functions. Um, So we have this enormous shared history, uh, and... I'm just wondering, what's what's your take on that? Do you see similarities between what's going on theater-wise in Australia and what's happening in the U.S.? Yeah, I think I'm actually particularly Canada. I spent some time in Canada uh, last year, and and there, um, the conversation going on there about colonization and the relationship to First Nations um, history uh, and the ongoing kind of colonial violence, I think, is is big. Um, and, and I'm seeing more emergent conversations happen between Australian First Nations artists and and First Nations artists from the States, too. There's sort of a recent conference in January in New York. And um, so I think there's, yeah, there's, there's stuff going on there. Um, 
yeah, I think a lot of the kind of questions around identity um, are pretty connected too. So, yeah, there is stuff going on. But I feel like America's got it in a different position in terms of its relationship to um, colonial violence and, and, and where its First Nations people sit in its identity now. Um, yeah, it feels they're, they're connected questions, absolutely. But the, um, the contexts also seem quite different too. So. Yeah, it's, uh, there are definitely some similarities because I think we're all dealing with the same, the same basic issues. Okay, I've got one, uh, one last question and then I will let you get back to your life with the little mm. is of it. Um, considering the role of the audience, you, you mentioned talking about that a, a couple of times, reconsidering the role of the audience in the artistic exchange and having a play and having an actors and having a stage and having gaslight is all very wonderful thing. But <laughs> it's, it's kind of useless without having at least one person out there clapping and writing rave reviews. Um, yes. So what is, in your view, I mean, what is the role of the audience other than to glorify the playwright? <laughs> well, it's, I mean, I, I, theater is fundamentally collaborative and it's a, a series of conversations that start often between a playwright and a dramaturg or a playwright and a director or whoever's the kind of initiating artists. And then that conversation continues. You're negotiating with actors, you're negotiating with designers, and then that conversation continues into the audience. And, and I think if you, you know, anyone who makes theater knows that moment of negotiation with the audience where you're putting something out there that's, um, that's complicated, that's, that's risky, that's your voice and, and you're hearing it land and you're hearing how it's negotiated in a room. And, and I mean, some of my favorite theatrical experiences are when, uh, artists are making work that enters the space and the audience does not know how to feel about what's going on there, that it's provocative, that it's potentially divisive or, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to chew on or it's, um, it's, it's too much to chew on, you know, it can be overwhelming, but it's, I love that moment of, of feeling an audience, um, yeah, really, really trying to negotiate it and kind of go, how do I relate to this thing? And that can be a thrilling experience. That's not just a bad taste in the mouth, but it's, um, uh, that to me is the audience's role is to, is to negotiate the, what's going on and, um, <clears throat> and to talk about it and, you know, to continue that conversation and become part of that conversation. Okay. So the and I think you, they're the second stage and, of this whole process. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And that's, that doesn't necessarily mean the audience is on stage or that, you know, that we've, we don't have to break the fourth wall, though I think it is up for question. Um, it's, it's, it's really, it's, yeah, it's, it's as simple as, as sharing space with one another and, and realizing the people on stage are as human as you are in the audience and, and, and having that kind of that empathy exchange going on and, and working it out. So, yeah, so I think that, that thing of conversation applies in, in interactive work as much as it applies in, in kind of, uh, conventional theater. Okay. Mark Pritchard, it's been absolutely wonderful talking with you. Um, across the globe and thank you so much for yes. taking the time. This has been fascinating. Yeah, thank you. It's been a great chat. I appreciate it. Okay, last thing. Tell our audience how we can find out more about you. I especially want everybody to uh, find that essay uh, on your website yes. about uh, dramaturgy because I found it absolutely fascinating. Great. So it's up on my website. My personal website is Mark Pritchard Makes Theatre and MarkPritchardMakesTheatre.com. 
Uh, so you can see kind of my work there and also check out the Center for Dramaturgy and Curation. So it's dramaturgyxcuration.com. And, uh, yeah, they're my websites. And then there's malthousetheater.com.au, which is my, my company's website too. So, yeah, you can see the range of what I'm up to. Busy man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much. Cheers, mate. Thanks a lot. Hey, kids, thanks for listening to On Stage, Off Stage. On Stage, Off Stage is produced monthly, and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at On Off Stage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or work in a part of theater we haven't covered yet or know of someone in the theater world, Who'd make some great chat? Please send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. Onstage Offstage believes in and advocates for a world where all people are free to live their lives as they wish, in peace and without fear. We believe in universal respect, diversity, and equality in all areas of life for all people, no matter what their nationality, race, religion, age, sexual status, or gender. Onstage Offstage will never promote or endorse those who seek to diminish others because of who they are. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again, and happy theatering to all of you. Yeah.